0: Welcome to Capital Conversations, an ERLC podcast from Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jeff Pickering. Around the table on Capital Conversations, you'll hear from the policy team of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, as well as featured guests from outside our D.C. office. Our conversations cover the policy debates and news shaping our world as we aim to connect our Christian theological motivations to political engagement in Washington. This week on the show, Travis and I welcome Dr. Kevin Smith onto the podcast to talk about the recent tragedy in Georgia, the killing of Ahmad Arbery. Dr. Kevin Smith leads the staff of the Baptist Convention of Maryland in Delaware, where he serves as executive director of that association. He has experience as a pastor, chaplain, church planner, conference speaker, and short-term missionary. He has studied at Hampton University, the Church of God Theological Seminary, and the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, subsequently serving on Southern's faculty for over a decade. In 2015, while serving at the Highview Baptist Church in Louisville, Kentucky, he was elected president of the Kentucky Baptist Convention. Kevin and his family now reside in Annapolis, Maryland. He and his wife, Patricia, have three adult children and two great nephews. His hobbies include riding his Harley-Davidson motorcycle around the country, which we will talk about in this interview. His ministry is animated by Jesus' prayer for the unity of his followers in John 17. Travis and I recorded this interview with Dr. Smith last Friday, May 15th. Uh, and are coming to you now, uh, Travis and I are, Monday, May 18th, because this is one of those interviews on such a difficult topic that, a difficult topic and an important news story that more news has come out uh, since we recorded this interview. So Travis and I thought it would be helpful to, on the back end of of the interview, after the interview that you listened to with Dr. Smith, uh, for Travis and I to cover some of those newest news stories that have come out. But you know, I'm I'm really glad to bring you this conversation uh, with with Dr. Smith and uh, and Travis. I know you are too.
1: Yeah, Kevin is uh, Kevin's a dear friend. I was very anxious to hear his thoughts about this case, about how it's impacted his family and just impersonally his his community, uh, the churches that he serves. And you know, this is a challenging topic. And you know, I'm I'm excited for our listeners to to get to hear this conversation.
0: It's it's one of those that as we as we thought about the need to have this conversation, I thought, well, we're still justice has not fully been served here. So you know, what exactly are we going to talk about that's helpful for a a policy discussion? Because again, the the purpose of this podcast is to help Christians imagine a new way to engage in the debates of of the day and in, in in the public square. But the thing that I loved about this interview with Doctor Smith is that he. He just helps give perspective for what this kind of news story is like for an African-American man, uh, father of sons and, and daughters. Uh, and, you know, if if all you take away from this conversation with Dr. Smith is learning how to lament with our brothers and sisters in Christ uh, over this kind of story, uh, then I think it'll be worth it. So as always, uh, if you enjoy listening to Capital Conversations, consider also signing up for our weekly policy newsletter to keep up the work of our team. Russell Moore, Travis Wusso, Chelsea Patterson, Sobolik, Stephen Harris and myself here in Washington, D.C. Our newsletter every week focuses on the different issues, whether they be religious liberty, human dignity, different issues we are advocating for in Washington, before Congress, before the administration, and uh, right now here in May and headed into June before the Supreme Court. We're expecting a lot of opinions and we'll be talking about all of them on the ERLC policy newsletter. You can sign up for it at erlc.com policy. Travis and I are now joined by Dr. Kevin Smith. Uh, Dr. Smith, thanks for joining us on Capital Conversations.
2: It is a pleasure to be with you. I certainly value uh, the work that you do, and uh, it's really good to talk to you.
0: Uh, Well, I I appreciate that, and uh, likewise, we really value the the work that you do and and Travis and I can can both say as citizens of the District of Columbia the Baptist Convention of Maryland and Delaware uh, means a whole heck of a lot to us as you guys are planning churches around the the greater DC area and uh, I believe you're you're coming to us from Annapolis, Maryland is that right?
2: I am. State Wonderful. capital right in the middle of the hot spot. <laughs>
0: yeah, so before we jump into the the conversation today, uh, I do just want listeners to to get to know you a, a little bit better. So uh, let's start with your biography. Uh, where where are you from and and what did your call to ministry look like?
2: Oh, well, I grew up in the washington d c. area, first in southeast washington d c and then in Prince George's County, Maryland, which is just outside of d c. I uh, went to Hampton University, historically black college in the Tidewater, Virginia area, and then um, had a career in auditing and accounting and was called to ministry really um, as a layman in my congregation teaching uh, Sunday school uh, in Lexington, Kentucky. I was uh, sitting in a church where there was faithful Bible preaching. It was the uh, first time in my life that a pastor kind of had a systematic approach to preaching scripture. And through the affirmation of fellow church members and things like that, had those gifts affirmed and just kind of, I always tell people, my call to ministry came from teaching high school, Sunday school boys.
0: I love that. That's, you know, that that's uh, that's really similar uh, to my dad. My dad's a pastor uh, in a town called Lake Jackson, south of Houston on the Gulf Coast in Texas. And uh he he likes to describe what he does as a lead pastor uh, when he left student ministry to become a lead pastor of a church uh, when we planted Brazos Point Fellowship. He likes to say that it's uh, it's youth ministry for, for adult kids, uh, is kind of how he <laughs> thinks of it. He's yeah. never really left student ministry. Um, well, that's great. And so now you're the uh, executive director of the uh, Baptist Convention of Maryland and Delaware. Tell us a bit about... About that ministry, um, what has that looked like in recent years? I mean, we we can talk about COVID here in a little bit, but what has that looked like over the last, say, two to three years?
2: Well, the Baptist Convention in Maryland, Delaware, goes back to 1836, uh, about nine years older than the Southern Baptist Convention. There were uh, messengers from Maryland at the founding of the SBC. Presently, we look like about 500 plus churches, 90% of them in Maryland, and maybe 10% in the Delaware. Planting, strengthening, uh, we have a good amount of churches that are in different modes of revitalization and trying to turn around kind of that nationwide trend of anywhere from 60 to 80% of churches being kind of flat or plateaued. It's a wonderful work. I've been here since 2016. I do regularly certainly miss pastoring a local congregation, Actually, especially in a time of challenge and crisis like COVID-19, uh, but it's a wonderful work. I get to serve pastors, get to serve lay leaders of congregations. And so uh, we're thankful to be able to be kind of the linchpin to tie us into our larger work together as Southern Baptists globally and around North America.
0: Yeah, I love that. So how, you mentioned COVID-19, you mentioned at the start of this uh, that Napolis, you're right there in a hot spot. How you holding up? It's been uh it's I think we're all kind of losing track of time, but what's it been, Travis? Like two Kinda. months? Yeah, that's true. It's been I've been March in 15th. I've been in Houston three weeks. Yeah, yeah, March 15th. Okay. So how are you holding up?
2: That was the first Sunday. Uh I miss the Saints and Miss Gathering and many of our congregations are missing that. But um I think overall we're doing pretty well. Uh we had some uplifting of regulations um, yesterday. But our convention, our state convention, these two states are so different. So we have 11 associations, and probably seven of them will really be affected by the governor of Maryland making some changes yesterday. Uh, But probably three to four of them will not be affected at all. Uh, Prince George's County, Montgomery County, Baltimore City, these more dense areas are still hot zones. And so things are well. We are empty nesters. And so my wife and I are, are enjoying one another. And 30, almost 30 years of marriage this is kind of the first time we've had like three meals together every day for like consecutive days. So that's <laughs> been fun and that's been delicious. <laughs> that's the silver and that's been, uh, but that's kind of where we are. But yeah, we're both kind of ready to see if the Lord will let this pass and things will change. Uh, but it's been great. Now, Merlin, Delaware, we do have a partnership with some three associations in Western Kenya. And that's probably been the most uh, traumatic thing because economic shutdown in the developed world is different than economic shutdown in the developing world. And things like trying to get food on a day-to-day basis, clean water, things like that. So it's been, uh, we're pressing on. Um, When I've talked to pastors, there's been certainly cases of COVID-19 in their congregations and we're certainly, Walking through the challenges of having um, funerals when congregations can't gather. Certainly, the last eight weeks haven't been able to gather. Uh, but we've also had weddings during the last eight weeks when congregations are saying, Hey, let's just figure out how to do this because I've been on True Love Waits too long and I ain't waiting no more. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> have you, uh, what, man, that I, I love, I feel like there have been so many great. Weddings and and memories that are going to last a lifetime. And it's, I mean, it's, I can't imagine having, you know, having to make that choice of getting married via Zoom uh, with your friends and families on Zoom. But, but I, I do feel like anybody who ever, you know, whoever says, oh, yeah, we got married in 2020. Oh, well, tell me the story. I mean, everybody's going to have a story. Uh, so I, I love that. I love that you mentioned that, and and I also really appreciate that you mentioned the congregations in Kenya and how different how different an economic shutdown and a, and a pandemic is in the developing world, where the basic building blocks of society that uphold us just are not there, and people. People are in a much in a much more grave situation. So I love that your churches are serving those in need and and bringing that to our attention. That's something that we ought to be in prayer for. So I, I appreciate that a whole lot, Doctor Smith. And so Travis and I reached out to you because we we wanted to talk about you know it's it's a different news story than COVID nineteen, but in many ways uh, it's. It's not a relief uh, from the tragedies uh, that we see in this pandemic. It's just another kind of tragedy. It's just another uh, horrific news story, and that is uh, the killing of Ahmaud Arbery in in Georgia. And here at the outset of this conversation, I'm just going to, using an Atlanta Journal-Constitution news story, uh, I'm going to just kind of run through the the facts as we know them at this point we're recording here in in mid may but you know th- this is a news story that has changed a lot in recent days and and, and i would encourage listeners i i'm, I'm going to have a lot of of resources in the show notes uh, both podcasts, articles, uh, news reports that we're going to reference throughout this conversation, and I, I would really encourage you, maybe even before listening to the rest of this show, you you go back and and learn the facts of the case uh, of what happened. But but just to set up this conversation here, the the facts again, according to the story, which I'll link to in the show notes from uh, from AJC, uh, titled "What We Know So Far About the Ahmad Arbery uh, Shooting," and and they just list them out so. so so first, um, this young man, Ahmad Marquez Arbery, was shot on February 23rd as he jogged through Satilla Shores, a mostly white community, a few miles from his Brunswick home. Uh, here's the second point: two men pursued Arbery as he was as he was jogging. Uh, cell phone video released by an attorney uh, starts with Arbery dressed in shorts and a T-shirt jogging at a leisurely pace. Uh, by the end of the roughly 36-second video clip. Uh, Arbery collapses after several shots uh, are heard. Arbery died from his injuries. Uh, Greg and Travis McMichael, the other two men in the video, father and son who confronted Arbery, told authorities they suspected Arbery of burglaries and, according to their word, that he became violent when confronted. Uh, Third point, questions surround Arbery's death. More than five hours after her son's death, Wanda Cooper-Jones got a call from the investigators. According to Arbery's mother, quote, your son was involved in a robbery, she was told. There was a confrontation with a homeowner. There was a fight over the handgun. Your son was shot, and he was shot multiple times. Arbery's funeral was held on February 29th. Uh, In addition to his parents, he survived by a brother, sister, grandmother, two nephews, 10 aunts, uh, according to his online obituary. Number four, no charges were filed in this case. Greg McMichael a former Glenn County cop, uh, most recently worked as an investigator with the local district attorney's office. Now, there's a lot more there, and we will we will come back to that. A couple other points uh, here um, after the the video was released, which um, was again months after uh, the February shooting. Video was released. The, the Georgia Bureau of Investigations ended up charging the McMichaels with murder. And less than two days after the GBI took over the investigation from the local officials, uh, they announced the the arrest of both of these men. Both father and son were charged with murder and aggravated assault. Since then, uh, there there has been a few peaceful protests, which if you look at the, the videos from that community, they're they're wearing masks, taking efforts to socially distance. Again, it's it's one of these effects of this pandemic that we're in. But there have been a few. The uh, Georgia Attorney General has uh, asked the federal government to investigate, and he's quoted as saying, "We've requested the involvement of the Department of Justice since we first took on this case. There are just too many questions about how this case was handled and why it took 74 days for the two killers to be arrested and charged in Mr. Arbery's death." Uh, and that report all comes from Christian uh, Boone of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, who's one of the crime reporters there, a local reporter in Georgia. So Dr. Smith, I, I just want to start by asking you to help Travis and I understand how our African-American brothers and sisters take in a story like this. Yet again, another senseless, horrific killing of a young African-American. I mean, what is it like to see this kind of breaking news? Once again,
2: I think um, two things are helpful to consider. One is just existentially how that type of news is processed. Um, And then two would be kind of historically how that type of news is processed. Existentially, many people don't have to think about the reality of just being assumed to be in the wrong place just because of how you look. I pretty much go where I want to go. I ride a Harley Davidson motorcycle. I've been in um, all of the uh, states in the lower 48 except Washington and Oregon. And it's interesting when I talk to friends. I have many friends. They're like, "Man, how in the world do you go to all those places? Ain't no way I would go to those places. I'd be scared to go all those places." And um, you realize that you know they're thinking about just the safety of being in a lot of places and maybe being misunderstood or falsely accused or having a negative thought towards you simply, um, simply because you're black in this case. So existentially, people process that news differently. Um, I have brothers and, you know, a black person, for example, me, a black male can process that like, well, wow, something like that could have happened to me. And then also as a black father, of young adult children in their 20s you're thinking like wow something like that could happen to my sons or my nephews so that's the existential way you kind of process some of that news and then historically which is the most ambivalent part of processing the news it's like same old same old this kind of the the characters and the players are different but the the layout of this news story is not strange to anything else that has happened you know in black history uh, in the US. You know, we're eight years later from George Zimmerman shooting Trayvon Martin. And, you know, you can still have a motif where some kind of conflict arises in an area because some young black man was just not perceived as having any reason to have been in that space, to have been in that neighborhood, to have been in that area, or we think you're this, or we think you that. And so, and then also, you know, zealous neighbors who you know, feel the need to play RoboCop or Barney Fife, one of these, and approach someone instead of calling the police and doing whatever. Um, in both those scenarios, you know, these individuals contact the police and say, we're going to do whatever. And the police are like, you're not the police. We will come do whatever. But of course, Barney Fife wants to do what he wants to do. And so they proceed instead of waiting for actual law enforcement, present active officers to examine a situation. Um, So those are kind of the two ways you process it existentially like, wow, that could have been me. That could have been my kids. I see how those misunderstandings happen. And then secondly, you just kind of think of those things in a historical frame of, uh, yeah, I'm used to these kind of stories. Nobody's surprised about this kind of story. And then also, if you combine history and what you're experiencing, you know, I'm so used to this stuff. I don't tweet about everything. But when I tweeted, it was kind of at the culmination of a video going viral or some high schoolers making jokes about how they don't like niggers and filming that and that going viral. And then uh, some white guy in the Northwest going into a grocery store and with a Ku Klux Klan hood as his mask. And so this is like the third thing uh, of those big news stories. And then certainly regarding the legal point, to then find out, well, yeah, they've known about this for two months and the DA didn't do that, do anything. That kind of stuff is never surprising as part of the black experience. So that's kind of how you know we've been processing some of the I've been processing some of this.
1: I think the historical point you made, Kevin, is something we want to drill down on. But before moving past just kind of the initial point, I I was reading an article. It was, I mean, I think it might have been the first article I was reading, and it it quoted um mother and you know she said something to the effect of um you know i'd never worried about him jogging before you know and that sentence itself just stopped me in my tracks one of my dear friends um from back in austin uh, Aaron and jamie ivy they they are adopted parents and and um have both uh uh, african-american son from the u.s and two two haitian kids and, you know, Jamie was just talking about how disorienting it was as a white mother, you know, who is disconnected from that history that you talked about. But still the fears, you know, still the fears, you know, sort of crash in on you as, you know, as a mom or a parent, you know, all of a sudden you're worried about the impact of this history sort of crashing into your family in a way that maybe you weren't ever expecting before. Um, you know, and I, I think we'll talk a little bit, you know, more in, in later on in the show about uh, David French. But I mean, I think it's it's interesting to see how many white adoptive parents, you know, are reflecting on this story in a way that is is similar to what you're saying, but I think there still is just a fundamental way in which as a white guy, I just can't I can't relate. You know, the, the history you laid out is not my history. It's not the history I've lived.
2: Yeah, I think history matters. And I do think over the last twenty five years, maybe twenty years, however long Bible-believing Christians have been a little more intentional about adoption. I think that has also allowed brothers and sisters to have some different insights as they think about uh, raising a Chinese daughter in America or raising a Haitian son in America or raising a child from somewhere else around the world um, who perhaps looks differently than a lot of their neighbors. I think that's been... um, helpful in helping our brothers and sisters kind of develop some empathy and kind of at least some some perspective on trying to process some of these things and that's always my greatest concern um you know i think we live in a fallen world i only have so much so many expectations my greatest concern is always the john 13 35 testimony of followers of jesus that we would love one another and certainly being indifferent and insensitive to the pain of a brother or sister is not a good example of loving one another.
0: Amen. Doctor Smith, help us understand as a as a black father, what do those kind of conversations look like in your family, in the African American community? That because I, you know, you talk about not being surprised by these news stories and it fitting a narrative. And I mean, Travis talking about Jamie, Jamie Ivy talking to her kids, and living a life where you have to be concerned about these things. Can you walk us through what that looks like?
2: Um, Yeah, you, you kind of do guarded parenting. At some point, you have to tell your children that they can be seen as a threat to other people in society and they're not the cute little kids that they once were. I can remember distinctively things of misbehavior and kind of things like that with my boys. You know, when you cross over from somewhere between 11 and 13, you know, people go from thinking of you as cute to maybe you may be a threat. And I had to make that strongly clear to them regarding disobedience, regarding being upset in various situations, regarding disrespecting teachers, regarding things like getting in a fight and violence, all those kinds of things. Uh, reminding uh, you teach your children how to interact with the police if they get pulled over uh, for speeding or any kind of interaction, or even if it's not driving, you just teach you teach your kids how to uh, interact with the police. Uh, you know, certainly I hope you make it clear to them that many police officers seek to do their work with integrity and honesty, but they're ones who do not seek to do their work like that. And then also they're human like anyone else, so they can be affected by prejudices and Uh, things like that that would affect um, any fallen human being. And so you you go through those things. And I want to say race is something real in our country, but it's certainly, you know, there are other things where you have prepared your children as well. Um, My daughter got married two years ago, about two years ago. And I remember feeling this great sense of relief when she got married, because since she was born in our kind of hyper-sexualized world, and our world of assault and our world of rape and our world of child abuse and our world of all kinds of things. From her birth, I, I used to think, like, Lord, can I please, please let me get her to adulthood and protect her in a way where she would not be assaulted in any kind of way. And I remember um, yeah, I have been walking her down the aisle like, Whew, thank you, Jesus. There's no trauma in this narrative. And it's so, it's so not unusual for there to be trauma. For example, in female narratives, as we've seen from all the stuff that you all have done on caring well, um, and so it's kind of that scenario of raising kids when there's things out there that you know can be against your kids, and just wanting to prepare them as much as you can, and then also living your life when you know there's things that can be against you, um, and just trying to prepare them, uh, prepare yourself as much as you can.
0: Doctor Smith, you're you're a pastor. You're a servant leader of countless pastors. Uh, not only in your part of the country, but around the world. Where should the church be in these conversations?
2: Um, ecclesia, the called-out, gathered ones. Um, I, I, I would pray that the church would be a sanctified, set-apart, kind of different community uh, in the days in which the church would find herself, uh, whether that be in America or in Kenya or in South Korea. And I think the the sin and the shame is that really there are many times when American Christianity could have distinguished itself or been set apart from the surrounding culture, and um, we just failed to kind of do that in a number of areas. Um, So I think the church should be a counter kind of community, Uh, a brother, sister, any kindred tribe, tongue, and nation, as we rejoice about when we think of the heavenly scene, ought to feel Accepted and received within the body of Christ, and receive with that everything of familyhood. You are a brother in this family. You are a sister in this family. And so all the one another's apply to you. Rejoice with one another. Pray for one another. Be patient with one another. Bear one another's burdens. Prefer one another. All those kind of things um, refer to you. Or apply to you. And you know, sadly, I think some of the same divisions that have characterized fallen society around us. If you think about Galatians 3.28, male, female, Jew, Gentile, social economic status, some of those same divisions that have characterized the unregenerate world have sadly also characterized the body of Christ. And I think our witness has certainly been harmed by that. And so my prayer where the church should be, the church should be that John 13.35 body where Jesus says, The world out there would know that you are my disciples by the love that you have one for another. I mean, even the people in Rome that hated the church could tell you how distinct and different the church was. I don't think that's necessarily, I I shouldn't say I don't think, that is not the characteristic of American Christianity. And I don't think it's, it's really ever been the characteristic. I mean, in 1845, when our SBC was founded, Frederick Douglass wrote his narrative that year. And in his narrative, he has this language about the Christianity of Christ versus the Christianity of America. And that was a Methodist guy, Methodist man in the um, 19th century, making that analysis. And then certainly there've been times before when American Christianity could have been distinct in how she presented herself as regards things like the image of God and understanding of humanity and anthropology. And um, unfortunately that witness did not come forth from Christians, but many times the, general prevailing things of the world kind of blended in. So we'll say historically, so-and-so was a man or a woman of his or her times. Well, that means they weren't a First Peter peculiar people set apart for holiness and righteousness.
1: Kevin, what is, you know, just going back to what you were talking about in terms of a love that characterizes our beloved community, what is the story, and, and not just the fact that it happened, but the way that it's played out, the way the conversation about this incident's played out in our culture? What does this say about where we are right now, both within the church, but, you know, within our culture?
2: Uh, it says we are drastically um, divided, and we are very far from, uh, number one, in the sense of the church, loving brothers and sisters, and number two, in the sense of our culture, of a broader society, loving our neighbor. The second part of what Jesus says is the great commandment. Um you know, no no one would, I don't think many people characterize American Christianity as being um, gentle, loving, soft, empathetic, patient, servant-minded. And those are certainly exactly things that are characteristic of New Testament community, the commands we see in the epistles and the commands we see from Jesus Christ, our head, the head of the church. And so I think it says that, um, I was reading the other day, someone said, um, maybe it was Brian Ritz, said, our, our relationship in Bible-believing Christianity needs to catch up with our theology. <laughs> so sometimes we have wonderful theology in the body of Christ, the Bible-believing body of Christ, but just poor relationships. And uh, he's making this assertion that our relationships need to catch up with our theology. And I think you know that says a lot about us. I think since the early part of this decade, I think it's just been clear that too much insensitivity and indifference characterize um, American versions of Christianity, and that's certainly not the New Testament model.
0: So, Travis, as the lawyer here on this podcast, I'm going to come to you to talk to talk us through some of the divergent conversations about what is just and right in a story like Amos first of all we didn't even hear about this if it wasn't for the cell phone video being released and i and i shudder to think about how many other stories have happened in recent years just like this one that there was never a video and so there was never this outcry from the public but we do know and there has been a light shined on this particular story unfolding in in this community in georgia what are some of the laws that are at question here? What are some of the conversations that have happened over the last couple of weeks since this did become a matter of public debate? So, Travis, walk us through the different laws that have been at question in this public debate and how we ought to be thinking about them.
1: Yeah. So, I, I mean, I think the the first point to make is the one that you started off with, which is that you know two months went by and no charges were dropped, and I think. You know, there's too much detail to sort of get into, you know, get into um, here. But um, I think there's a couple of articles we're going to link to in the show notes about it. But, you know, it's it's a story. It's a story of a good old boys network of people who knew each other and looked out for each other and, and ultimately protected each other. And, you know, the the case was was passed around. It was clear that um it was clear that that everybody who looked at the case saw that it was uh it was a difficult one but you know it wasn't until uh, at the state level in georgia uh, that they got involved that movement started to happen on it you know and i and i think you know i do think that the attorney general of georgia deserves some credit for you know finally taking action on it but it is worth pointing out he could have brought the indictment himself but he still passed it uh to a grand jury uh you know to let them make the decision so that's the first point, you know, is, I mean, I think you're exactly right. If there's no cell phone footage, probably you and I are not talking about this case or thinking about this case right now. And and that is sad and and sickening uh, to, you know, to think about the different levels of justice that ultimately get executed in this case or in cases like these. Uh, but the other, and I, and I think this is one of the most interesting Pieces of this, in in terms of the debate, is Georgia's Stand Your Ground law and the way that that has been invoked in this case. A friend of mine sent me this this clip on this clip that had been going around on on Facebook, not not approvingly, but it was an edited version of the of the exchange. And it started with the part where Arbery's hands were on the shotgun, and the question posed uh, above the uh, above the video was, "Well, what were these guys supposed to do?" Well, that's oh obviously not gosh. where the story starts, no. you know, and if you look no. at it like that, uh, that that's, that that's where Georgia stand your law uh, stand your ground law begins. Um, well, I could, I guess I can understand that perspective, but that's, that of course is not the scene, right? What you have is an unarmed man walking up upon a threat and a, and a weapon is, is, uh, is trained on him. So Georgia stand your ground law actually protects him. Not those two not those two brothers. He had every right to to make a move towards the gun. He had every right, right to try to defend himself. Right. Um, and you know, it it was it was these two vigilantes, I can't remember the term used for him, Kevin, you know, who are obviously in the wrong here. Yeah, I,
0: I mean I mean, not only are they are they obviously morally in the wrong, but on almost every count that has been used to defend them. It's not only wrong, but it actually, uh, and I'm so glad you made that point, Arbery is actually the one who had every right to stand his ground in this situation. I mean, he he came up on a truck blocking the road. They were hunting him. And I think that's why it's been so haunting for so many people is the just absolute insanity of the idea that, that the McMichaels would be in any way uh, defensible here.
1: Uh, and, right. you know, you have the additional justification of the citizens' arrest and and all that kind of thing. But, you know, I think what's at the heart here, and Kevin, I'd be interested in your reflections on this. But is is a distorted sense of what it means to get to stand your ground? Does that mean that you get to defend your neighborhood from people who you don't want? Coming in, does that mean that you uh, get to use your weapons however you feel is justified? You know that you can train a weapon on somebody and and say, "Well, we just want to ask you some questions." I mean that it 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 reveals a a very disturbing way of thinking about the rights that, that these two men felt like they had uh, to use force outside of their homes and just out in their communities. But Kevin, I, I mean, my 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 guess is as you you know, as you said, kind of at the top of the podcast, there's a sense in which even that's not really new, is it?
2: No, it, it's not new. Obviously, there's a legal train of thought in the, throughout American society, American history of uh, property rights and the ability to defend your, uh, your grant. So I think it's important to think about, you know, the legal trajectory as it regards protection laws regarding property rights and castle laws and self-defense laws but i think obviously in this case as i thought in the george zimmerman case i I think when you are the provocateur and you initiate the conflict uh, i think it's ridiculous to be able to try to then claim to be using defensive laws you know sometimes i talk to christians and they'll say uh you know what do we think what do you think we can do about some of these situations well one one thing i think is encourage more People who love righteousness and justice and who have integrity to run for district attorney. I think many times Christians are kind of caught up in the same American dream rat race as everyone else. And so, even if they're younger Christians that are interested in the law, many times they're probably encouraged towards corporate law or towards practicing with firms, which is much more lucrative. And if Christians have a love your neighbor, uh, sympathetic heart. Sometimes they get into things like public defenders and also things like that, but it, if, if there's constant cases where there's constant disruption, um, I think Christians ought to look at people who love, and, and and even non-Christians, people who value righteousness and the integrity of the law as, as written in the code uh, should should seek to run for district attorney. I think it's one of the gaps in our legal system. It might be the weakest link because Most of these stories that go on in America, they come back to whether or not a district attorney chooses to prosecute, whether or not a district attorney does a real grand jury or whether they play with it like they did in Ferguson. And so I think uh, the weakest link many times in our criminal justice system or our justice system period, in the United States is the district attorney. And so I wish many more people of integrity people of righteousness and people of justice, and certainly those who are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ would care about righteousness and justice. I wish many more of those types of people would run for district attorneys around the country.
0: That is such a good word, and and I think it's especially important for people to hear that from a man like you, who's a pastor, uh, encouraging, encouraging those listening, those those young men and women listening, who maybe they're considering uh, what their legal career might be. Maybe they're in law school right now, and you know, I, I've often found as I lead our internship program and, and these kinds of conversations, a word from a pastor about pursuing different career paths goes such a long way because we can, you know, the way we were raised or uh, the kinds of pressures put upon us by a professor or at an internship uh, can just distort where people may sense God is calling them to. And I think you're exactly right that we need more men and women of righteousness in these kinds of in these kinds of roles so that when when sin does unfold in our communities, the authorities can be, uh, can be the bearers of the Romans 13 sword in a right and in a just way. that could look at a situation, give everybody their due process rights, their days in court, uh, but then pursue justice where where the where the evidence leads. And it's just a, you know, that this this story is one of those that's a tragedy of of racism. It's a tragedy. Of a just horrific death that should not have ever happened uh but but then it also to add injury to insult is is a tragedy of a corruption of justice and as Travis said a good old voice network and thankfully that is changing right now as the story continues to unfold but but again I I just I just uh I, I love that that word again coming from from you as a pastor and as a man of God encouraging Christians to think about that.
2: One of my greatest joys at one of the churches I served was three or four men who were doing well in corporate America, but they were miserable and they loved children. And eventually we were able to go get them certified through the university of, uh, there, the university of Louisville had a certification program. If you want to go into education and they are faithful, wonderful teachers now at different grade levels, but you're correct. It was, uh, Uh, Each of them has said, man, it was real edifying for my pastor to say, yeah, it's fine to leave corporate America and go teach if you want to get, if you want to uh, teach. Uh, A lower salary has nothing to do with righteousness or godliness or what honors the Lord at all. So I pray that many people would um, consider that, things of righteousness and justice and pursue those types of careers. And um, it would be exciting to have a. to not have uh, just an inclination that, hey, the justice system is going to work if you're the right color or the justice system is going to work if you have the right m- amount of money and income. And uh, it really shouldn't be that way. And so if people are, who value righteousness and justice will fill those roles, I think it would be a positive thing. And Christians can encourage that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Amen. Well, uh, Dr. Smith, as as we're wrapping up this conversation on on this particular story, I want to point folks to uh, Russell Moore's article, "The Killing of Ahmad Arbery and the Justice of God." Uh, this is a piece Dr. Moore wrote uh, back on May sixth about the story. And uh, as our as our conversation here is is landing on seeking justice and that it's the call for a Christian, yes, to bear one another's burdens and uh, and to lament this story alongside uh, Ahmad's family, uh, it's also our call to seek justice. And, you know, I, Dr. Moore, I, again, I, I would love to read through this whole piece, but I'll just encourage folks to go, go check out the link. Uh, and 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 click on it, but but I do want to read the conclusion as a sort of uh, as a sort of conclusion here to our conversation. And and Dr. Smith, if if there's any uh, parting words of exhortation for the saints who are listening, uh, I'd be glad to to hear that from you. So again, this is this is Russell Moore in the killing of Ahmaud Arbery and the justice of God. Whatever the facts that are offered up in this case as the process moves forward, we ought to be reminded of the threat of violence that has raged inside of humanity since Cain. Courts will decide whether these men will be punished as murderers, and we can pray the courts are right and just in their verdict. But we also ought to remember that many of our black and brown brothers and sisters were killed by mobs or individuals where there was no video to show anything. The memorial sign marking the murder of Emmett Till had to be replaced with a bulletproof marker because too many people were shooting it up, delighting in the lynching of a man by a bloodthirsty mob. And, like Cain, those who do such things always think no one will ever see. But God says to Cain, quote, where is Abel, your brother? Genesis 4. And similarly, Jesus said, quote from Luke 12, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Whatever is ruled in this case, we know that the blood cries from the ground in countless matters of violence and bloodshed, and God sees and knows. That's a word of promise for those weary in seeing justice done. And it's a word of warning
2: for those who would avert their eyes. I think that's a sharp word. I'm thankful for my brother, Dr. Russell Moore. And I encourage you again, if we are living in a fallen world and we think that the justice system in different places uh, is broken and expresses that fallenness in too full of a manner, I would encourage us as salt and light witnesses, as uh, uh, people who are followers of Jesus Christ to get involved in that system. Uh, so certainly as a citizen, you know, don't shun when you're called for jury duty. And certainly if you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you happen to find yourself as one who likes the law and you're in law school and you may be feeling empty in your career and you're like, oh yeah, I'm doing well, but I'm I'm making a lot of money, but I don't know if my life is making a difference. Maybe you should look at law enforcement. Maybe you should look at the district attorney's office in particular. Um, Obviously you can look around the country and figure out that you don't have to be the, uh, it's not like people just win those roles because they are excellent lawyers. Uh, And so there's openings and there's opportunity for people who really pursue believe in righteousness and godliness uh, and justice, I should say, to be involved in that particular way. So thank you so much for the opportunity to share with you. Um, This is yet another demonstration of our system and may Christians be salt and light in those areas.
0: Absolutely. Well, Doctor Smith, thank you so much, and I hope that uh, I hope that all of the complications that have come from this uh, season of social distancing with COVID nineteen go away soon, and you're able to jump back on your Harley and, and ride around, ride around Maryland and Delaware and the rest of the country, uh, rest of the country soon. God bless you and your family. God bless you. We'll be right back after this message from our sponsor. This episode of Capital Conversations is brought to you by The Good Book Company, publisher of the Talking Points series. This is a series of short books focused on Christian compassion, convictions, and wisdom for today's big issues. The particular book we want to highlight this week is the Talking Points on Abortion book. This is a book written by Dr. Lizzie Ling and Vaughn Roberts that seeks to help Christians think biblically, speak wisely, and act compassionately on the complex issue of abortion. To learn more and to purchase this book, you can click the link in our show notes or go to thegoodbook.com. That's thegoodbook.com. Travis and I are back here after that awesome interview with Dr. Smith uh, so, Travis, again, we are recording here on Monday, May 18th. We recorded that interview with Kevin Smith on Friday, uh, the Friday before this. What new news have we learned about this situation over the weekend?
1: Yeah, so there are sort of three details I, I want to draw out. And the the first is is really the most unbelievable of them all, which is that the only reason we have this 32-second clip in the first place is because... Travis McMichael released the 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 footage himself because he thought it would be exculpatory. He thought it would help explain uh, what happened, and uh, you know, obviously the you know the the reverse the reverse has turned out to be the case. Um, you know, and I and I th- I think that's significant because it it just you know we talked a little bit on the uh, in the conversation about the mindset that. The McMichaels um, must have had about the use of force and their role in their community, and that and that kind of thing. That you know, this that detail just you know. S- sort of fills out that story that they were so confident that they had done nothing wrong. They thought all of us seeing how that incident went down uh, would help us see their side of the story when, you know, obviously it, it does the exact reverse. So that's the first thing. And the did, second and is did that the exact w- reverse.
0: I mean, the, <laughs> if it wasn't for that video being released, I don't know that they'd be arrested
1: and sitting in jail right now. I mean, it, it no, you're right. I mean, it's why we, we wouldn't know about this case. Yeah. We would not know about this case without that, uh, without that footage and that that's connected to the third point um but the the second is that apparently there is about four minutes of of footage where they are uh chasing this young man through that neighborhood and uh a civil rights uh lawyer posted posted about the existence of that just uh, earlier this afternoon and you know so we'll, we will just have to see what's on that footage then, you know, the last is this this new detail that has come out about how the the police in that area sort of informally deputized uh the older McMichaels uh gentleman to and, and kind of authorize the the owner of this property where the construction was, was going on to call McMichaels if anything happened day or night. And there's, there's this really, I I think, interesting quote from the text exchange that, that has been released where the older McMichaels apparently said, quote, he said, call me day and night if, if anything happens. And so, you know, you, again, I mean, you, you don't want to draw too much from, you know, from just one statement like that, but it, it, it just, it shows that this is not a guy who thinks that he's retired. You know, he, he still thinks he's, he's a part of, you know, he's a part of this, but, you know, again, he doesn't have a badge. He doesn't have the right or the authority to wield force on behalf of the government is of his community. And the case is getting more complicated. It's, it's showing, you know, I think that last detail shows a little bit, perhaps why we, you know, why we didn't hear more about this case in that. McMichael's and the local police and the DA are even more entangled with each other than we originally understood, and you know I think all of this is reasons why we should be grateful that the state has basically taken over this case and has has pulled it out of that local jurisdiction and you know hopefully justice will will prevail in this, in right. this case.
0: Travis, give us a theological reason for why it's so important that only officers of the law with a badge who are who are actual employees of the police department the sheriff's department the state federal government why is that so important from a theological understanding in terms of the use of force
1: right i mean this this is what romans 13 teaches is that god has given this the authority to take life to mete out Punishment to reward good behavior, as as Paul says in in Romans thirteen, that is the function that God has given to government. He has not given that function to you or me. So if you or I think that somebody has done something wrong, you are you and I have no right, in a theological sense, not not even in a you know within the the context of the American system, you and I have no right to take up arms against that person. Our only recourse is to appeal uh, to the government, which. You know, again, in you know thinking about the context of, that Paul was writing Romans thirteen, the Roman government in the first century was not a perfect arbiter of justice. Yet Paul still felt, because of the theological weight of what he was arguing, uh, this isn't a practical argument. This is a theological argument that we we have to hand these things over to the authorities and let them deal with it, because that's the system that God has set up. And so, you know, I I think in some ways, and I I. You can sort of already see this playing out in social media, you know, that these new details are a bit of a Rorschach test in that, you know, people are going to look at them in different ways, but- That is exactly right, yeah. Well, but I just, I find it, I find it really chilling that anybody would be satisfied by the fact that this guy was in, you know, sort of been informally deputized uh, to handle this situation. That whole arrangement from the outset is inappropriate and should never have happened. Right.
0: Right. It's it's one thing, not just legally, but theologically. Right. Right. No. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it would be one thing uh, I would assume. and, And I'm and I'm kind of asking this again to to you as a lawyer, Travis, but it would it would have been one thing had they said there's a retired law enforcement officer in the area. He can you know, he can give you advice about what you might need to do or he could maybe be on watch for the neighborhood to. To give us a call to come respond to something, uh, if if you felt like you were in danger in your in your neighborhood, kind of as as another uh, set of eyes and ears in the community of somebody who had that formal law enforcement training, but again, that's not what happened here. But that would be potentially an appropriate use of you know private citizens working with law enforcement.
1: Yeah, p- potentially, sure. I mean, or you know, I mean, and and it's it's a rural community. Apparently, the nearest police officer was you know was some distance away. And so, you know, I mean, I, I understand the problem that they're trying to solve, but if you need additional resources, actually leverage those resources legally and deputize this guy formally as a part of the state. That's one way to address it, right? I mean, what happened in this case is, you know, ba- is, is basically with sort of a veneer of legal legitimacy, you know, this father-son duo and a third person were pressed into action as a vigilante posse. That's what happened. And I mean, you know, more details are going to continue to come out of this case, you know, and, and I, I, don't want to be, you know, I, I think it's, it's important that everybody has a fair hearing. So I think we, you know, we need to continue to evaluate the new evidence as it, you know, as it comes out, but, you know, these, these new details that, that have emerged over the weekend are not exculpatory and, you know, they, they continue to paint an alarming picture of what went down uh, right. that day.
0: Well, it that's true. Everyone should have their day in court, and uh, and you know it's 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 good and and righteous that we have a system of justice in this country where people are able to have their day in court. But it is it is evil that Ahmad Arbery won't be able to have his day in court assuming that he is, you know, guilty of any sort of crime that a neighborhood ought to take action against him. I mean, we, we don't we don't know that all. All that has been put forward thus far is him at a construction site, something that I that I have done countless times in various neighborhoods that I've lived in, uh, that I think everybody has done. Um, but you know, I, I think that just goes to the importance of the conversation and the perspective that Dr. Smith was able to bring to us. To just imagine what it would be like to be a black man in America where you are viewed and there's not a presumption of innocence until proven guilty like we all want in our law. There's, there's a presumption of you're a threat until you prove otherwise to me. And that's heartbreaking and the church needs to engage these conversations. And we also just need to engage in our own hearts to understand where those biases and tendencies are in the way that we see our neighbors and, and see people in the world, whether it be race-based or some other, some other demographic uh, way of, of seeing people. Do, do we assume the best? Do we, do we seek to be peacemakers or, or not? And that's, again, why I was so thankful that Dr. Smith came on the pod to offer that perspective. Uh, Travis, thanks also for coming back twice in two business days uh, for podcast recording here. Uh, This is an important conversation, and we're going to continue to engage it at ERLC. Good to be with you, Jeff. This is Capital Conversations, an ERLC podcast from Washington, D.C. Thanks to our production team, and thanks also to you for joining us for this painful yet critical conversation. Be sure to subscribe to Capital Conversations wherever you are listening to us and consider dropping us a rating and a review. This really does help others find our show and learn about important conversations like this one. Our hope for this podcast is that the conversations would foster a new way for Christians to engage in the public square. If you've been talking recently with a friend about the tragic killing of Ahmad Arbery, send them a link to this conversation. We would love to welcome them around our table. Resources from this episode, as well as links to all of our other URL podcasts are available at erlc.com to equip you and your church.